Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM. Let's create. One of the more important things, I think, for writers, uh, especially for young writers, is to not let what you already know get in the way of what you need to learn. And so to remain, like, think having it all figured out is a terrible position for a writer to be in. You know, because one, it's not true. It can't be true. And two, you don't know that it's not true, which makes you doubly uh, vulnerable, you know, or poorly positioned. And so the kind of open inquiring position is much more valuable for writers than the knowledgeable, sage, you know, let me hold forth position. That was Jelani Cobb. I'm Sam Fragoso. This is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. I first discovered the writing of Jelani Cobb through death. On March 21, 2012, Jelani penned an article for The New Yorker titled Trayvon Martin and the Parameters of Hope. The piece was published less than a month after the 17-year-old was shot in the back by George Zimmerman. We remember this murder almost as much as the trial that followed it, a different kind of crime. Okay, Jelani, thanks for being with us. Let's talk about this point. Uh, the prosecutor saying this case is not about race. What do you think? Do you agree with them? 
Well, I mean, I think that from a prosecutorial standpoint, that's what he had to say. But there's also, you know, the old uh, truism that nothing certifies that something is about race, you know, more than an unsolicited denial that something is about race. <laughs> right. And so um, absolutely, race is at the heart of this. If this wasn't a matter of race, we wouldn't be here. In the five years since Martin's passing, there have been many changes in Cobb's career. He's now a staff writer at The New Yorker, where he writes insightfully about the intersection between race, history, and politics. He's published three books of nonfiction that vary from essays on hip-hop to President Obama. He's also a professor of journalism at Columbia University in New York City. The point is, the man is supremely accomplished. A fact I came to only really understand upon sitting across from Cobb in his office at Columbia. But his resume is fairly well known at this point. It takes a cursory Google search to find some of those facts out. What was unclear, at least to me, was life before becoming someone we look to, both on screen and on the page, for sanity. Cobb's writing has that quality. And yet, he seems to be just as measured and thoughtful in person as he does on the page. This is one of those conversations that felt like it could have gone on for days, but this is what we have for now. So I hope you enjoy it. Here, finally, is Jelani Cobb. to start you were born in queens in 1969 mm-hmm. you've talked about this a little bit uh, on your website and in some other interviews but both of your parents mm-hmm. moved here from alabama mm-hmm. is it from the south mm-hmm. so your mom's from alabama your father was georgia georgia uh-huh. okay and what year did they come here because they, they were living in a segregated south right. at the time mm-hmm. so uh my father came long before my mother uh, because it was a big age gap between the two of them uh, and my father uh, came to New York uh, when he was about 19 or 20 uh, which would have been around 1940 and my mother came to New York when she was uh, about 17 mm. uh, which would have been about 1960 uh, and so uh, they had these different you know, narratives of how they wound up coming, leaving the South, but in some ways, very similar kinds of things. And it was one of the things that when, you know, uh, I became a historian and when I started studying, you know, these things, it began to illuminate my own personal family history right? uh, about the dynamics of, you know, how people left the South and so on. But, you know, my father, you know, had this idea as a young person, he was living in this little speck of a town called Hazelhurst, Georgia, that uh, if he could just make it to the big city, everything else would take care of itself. Uh, and so he had these you know, ambitions that he was going to move to New York. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, he was an electrician, which he was trained as an electrician, which was a huge thing at that point in mm-hmm. time, especially when you know, electrification was still happening in these small little towns across the United States. Uh, and so uh, my father had a third grade education, which was interesting because there was a a, a uh, friend of his, my father, who's a close friend, was a young uh, guy, his same age, but who was white. And uh, his father, his friend's father, was an electrician. Uh, 
he decided he was going to teach his son uh, to follow in his footsteps, and he was going to teach his son's friend, who was my father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in 1933, that just really didn't happen in the Deep South. And so my father had this trade, uh, and he left uh, New York. He left Georgia for New York, uh, thinking that he could just kind of find his way in the city. And you know, my mother left uh, Alabama around the same time for for similar reasons. She'd had my sister very young. She was 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was looking around and saying that she just did not think it would be possible for there to be a future for the two of them uh, in in uh, Bessemer, Alabama. And so my mother came to New York and uh, worked as a domestic and as many black women did in that migration. Uh, and she worked as a domestic and then uh, worked as a phone operator. And eventually uh, she got an apartment in Harlem uh, where lo and behold, there was a problem with the electricity. And one day they sent over the electrician. <laughs> That's Love how I got here. at first... Light going out. Yeah, light going out. That's pretty good, actually. So the funny thing is that my father, he came over, he did the repairs, but then kept coming over to, like, making excuses uh, to come back and and check on the work. I think this bulb doesn't work. Yeah, this doesn't seem like it's working. The door. I I, I know I'm not a handyman, (laughs) but the door. It seems like something. And eventually uh, my mother got the drift. Did she pick up on this? Oh, yeah, yeah, she got the drift. So your dad was flirting pretty hard. Yeah, he was. Uh So The reason I brought this up is that... Your writing is, I mean, you call yourself at once a journalist and a historian. Mm -hmm. And I'm fascinated in, like, when did you hear this historical journey from your parents? Mm -hmm. Were you a child when they told you this? Has this story been revised, like, over the years? Were you told this? Well, I think I got the photoshopped version of the story when I was young. Mm -hmm. uh, Because my father really was reluctant to talk about what living in... Uh, segregated Georgia in the 1920s and 1930s had been like. Because he didn't want you to feel the pain of it? Yeah, he wanted to protect me, I think, from that. And I think my mother did a similar kind of thing. And she uh, grew up in a coal mining uh, community in Bessemer, uh, an area called Pipe Shop. Uh, And, you know, when I got older, of course, and I mean, like, in my 20s, maybe my late 20s, and I actually started reading the history of, you know, the coal mining industry and, you know, what happened in the South after the collapse of slavery and the the agricultural economy that slavery had supported, had uh, upheld. And, you know, and Alabama's turn to industrialism and, you know, steel and coal and how black labor wound up being uh, deployed in those industries, but exploited in a way like coal miners, even now when people talk about that, it's kind of a metaphor for labor that is exploited right uh, and well it's like that i mean i feel like the the introduction for a lot of people was that documentary in the harlem county mm-hmm. usa did you ever see that no i don't think mm-hmm. it's about coal miners and the toxicity of the air mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how it's clearly not a job that's equitable for any human being no not in uh, the united states i mean you talk about uh uh you know industrialism in uh the uk uh, and kind of the dawn, the dawn of industrialism anywhere, uh, you wind up with someone in a hole mining coal. Like those mm-hmm. are the things, even we talk about China 
and the you know rapid advances we're having now and all these coal plants that are coming online like coal winds up being connected to all of those developments and in the United States it was connected to that development and its industrialism and race mm. and the cocktail of those two things was not pretty and so here's an interesting thing about kind of the way that this story works which is that in a very profound sense you know I feel like uh, everything I've done in my life has been an attempt to exact retribution upon the people who wanted to limit the prospects of my parents. And that was something that I understood, you know, kind of clearly as I came to understand more about who they were. Uh, and, you know, my mother um, living in, you know, a pipe shop and kind of seeing, you know, the things that she saw there uh, and, you know, and, and keeping a good deal of that from us. But when I was 32 or 33, uh, I you know, drove to Alabama. I was living in Atlanta at the time. I drove to Alabama to visit some relatives. And as it happened, I was talking to my mother on the phone and mentioned to her sister that I wanted to see Pipe Shop. I wanted to see the area where they grew up, even though it's no longer you know, right, standing. Right. Uh, and my mother adamantly, you know, she you know, told me to put her on the phone with her sister and she was like, don't let him see this place and so on. And I was a grown man, very much a grown man at that point. Um, and of course we went anyway. But, you know, when I got there, I kind of got an understanding of what it was that it, it was, what it must have been like to, um, you know, have grown up in, in that environment and uh, how difficult it would have been and segregation and there was a great deal of violence there. And, you know, so for me, writing you know, and, you know, pursuing education and um, telling the stories that I tell and so on and being able to live the life that I live is, I still think about that as trying to um, even the score for the lives that my parents were not supposed to live. Mm. Did that ethos come about when you were at Howard, uh, like turning mm -hmm. 20? Is, mm -hmm. Did that thinking, is that where it really like cemented itself? Yeah, interestingly, it did because, but it was a, a weird point where I had to kind of go out and learn about the world and then circle back. So when I became a, a history major um, at Howard, I was a double major in English and history. But the appeal of history was that uh, I took a class uh, called Black Diaspora with a professor by the name of Adele Patton. I remember this, and I was uh, it's a great 18. name. Yeah, it is. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm still in touch with him actually, uh, and uh, I was an 18 year old freshman. And we came in one day, and he uh, started talking about uh, bauxite and its relationship to the uh, economies in you know the West Indies, you know particularly Jamaica, and how you know the destabilization of those economies was directly related to you know the tide of West Indian immigrants that came to the United States in the 1960s. Of course, this is after the uh, liberalization of immigration laws in 1965. And I specifically remember, as a young person growing up in Queens, that in you know the early you know maybe mid seventies when I actually started to have like some consciousness about these things, that there came to be as opposed to the community where I lived was just uh, African Americans with Southern accents, you know people who had come up you know during the migration, mm -hmm. there began to be Black people who had West Indian accents, and it's something that a child would notice because they're different accents or whatever, but. The mechanisms by which that occurred, I had no frame of reference for. And then I remember sitting in his class and saying, oh, wow, like, 
he's teaching about this global dynamic. But what I witnessed is that there are now West Indians in my neighborhood uh, and that now there is a restaurant that sells um, Trinidadian food, roti, you know, and as opposed to just the soul food restaurant. Uh, And, you know, there are these communities that are interacting in ways that are, you know, sometimes reinforcing, sometimes, you know, not, sometimes there's hostility, you know, between them. But all these things are connected to this, this other dynamic. And so... That fascinated me because it showed history's ability to illuminate the world I was already living in. And I think that was also the connection I made with you know, my parents and my family and what my purpose, I suppose I could say, in life would, would be. That's an early time to find purpose. You, you found it very early. At the time, though, it didn't seem that way. I mean, I think so now. Um, it didn't seem like you found purpose or that it, didn't it was seem, early? It didn't seem early. You were 20. What, did you, what do you mean? 18 yeah, I just, even. I just knew what I was going to do. <laughs> you know? and, uh, it, and it took me a long time to do it. Well, maybe it's a matter of focus. Mm-hmm. We were talking before. is like your college life was a lot different, it sounds, mm-hmm. than most people. Most people go to college and they try to like find some sort of love and they do drugs mm-hmm. and they do all <laughs> like That's like the thing. And you... None of that. None of that. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, externally, there was... A lot of things going on. This was like the apartheid era and the you know the anti-apartheid uh, movement, and we were on campus and you know being politicized by that. And this was you know the crack era and you know the late '80s, and, you know the crack era, and there were you know homicide numbers in Washington D.C. where I went to school were tremendous. And so we had all these reasons to think about the implications of the world. And mm. so while I mean lots of people were kind of having fun and pursuing love and getting high and all those other things. I pursued love. I never got high, <laughs> which was I'm still to this day one of those random people who has never done any drugs um, at all. I wonder, is that too late now? Yeah, I think that ship has sailed. <laughs> you just had your first kid yeah. with 10 weeks ago now? Yeah, 11 weeks, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah I don't know. Kind of, you I have, you know what? When, yeah. when she goes to college, uh, then... When, I'm, when she'll go to college and I'll be like retirement age. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's okay. the time. You can oh, do that. Okay, let's see what this weed thing is all about. Yeah. <laughs> It'll definitely be legal <laughs> by then. Right. Why do you think you resisted some of that stuff? Is, is, it, is it about my gut feeling, or maybe this the surface thought is, knowing where your family came from mm-hmm. and the fact that you know neither of your parents mm-hmm. went to school. Mm-hmm. Perhaps did you feel like an obligation to do this, not only well, but seriously? Yeah, I did. I mean, it's the same sort of sense that people have about immigrant, the children of immigrants. Like, people have taken great sacrifices to give you the opportunities that you have. And I think that was very clear to me. Um, And so my father had a third grade education. My mother did have a high school education. She um, left uh, Bessemer in high school. And, of course, when she was pregnant, that's what people did. You know, they sent their kids away. Um, Mm -hmm. It was, you know, a source of shame. And so she, but she did finish high school in Chicago and then moved to New York from there. And so, but I very much had this idea that people had gone through a lot to give me the opportunities that I had. And the other thing is that, you know, this blended family, uh, my father, my oldest brother from my father's first marriage, uh, went to Vietnam Mm -hmm. and uh, came home from Vietnam addicted to heroin. And then, you know, he kicked, you know, he managed to kick, but then he died of uh, what we later realized was AIDS. Um, and so uh, that implanted very clearly in my mind that just, you know, seeing what he went through. Did that, you watch him fight it? I did, yeah. 
Um, but of course, we were young. And this was like before people even had the word um, HIV or AIDS. Uh, and so he died in 1980, and this is right around the time people were dawning. There was like dawning consciousness of this. Uh, but I definitely remember him, you know, struggling with heroin when he came back from. I was six, seven, eight, you know, old enough to remember things, but not really to understand them. The context, for yeah. It, mm-hmm. right? 1989, you're 20, and you add Jelani to mm-hmm. William Cobb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so. <laughs> There was a political reason for that, and there was a practical reason for that. And I've told people the political reason, but I never really talked about the practical reason. Well, let's do both. Yeah, so the political reason was that, uh, you know, I was very much involved in these struggles uh, around, you know, race and racism and anti-apartheid and, you know, all these things that were important to me on campus. And I felt like I wanted a name that reflected my con- my connection to you know, this lineage in Africa that had been severed by the transatlantic slave trade. And that was part of it. Uh, and so, you know, was opposed to, I never dropped my first name, uh, but I just added, you know, Jelani as my middle name. And so it was William Jelani Cobb. Now, my uh, given name was William Anthony Cobb, which meant that my initials <laughs> were... W-A-C. Oh. <laughs> Whack. Yeah, no. I didn't want to go through life with that. <laughs> so, You think people were going to call you out of that your whole life? I mean, honestly, I remember when, when it dawned on me like that these were my initials. And this was like the early... This is like the 1970s. Cause mm-hmm. This is like an element of slang that has been had remarkable durability. And I remember saying, oh, that term. People won't even use that term in a few years. And then I got to college, and people were still using it as like a term of derision. No, whackness has longevity. Right. Yeah, it has longevity, right? And like uh, in my late 40s at this point, and people still use the word. <laughs> so I was like, if the word is not leaving, then I have to change. It carried because Tribe Called Quest used it in like three songs. Yeah, well, maybe that was it. I'll, I think so. I'll attribute to the, you know, Q-Tip is also from Queens, so not far from me. I can blame him. Yeah, we'll just blame him. Mm-hmm. It also seems that it means powerful. Mm-hmm. That was aspirational. I had no idea that I had any sort of power or whatever, but I was like, that's what I wanted to do. And it means strong and strength and, you know. Um, and so the other, I guess, point here that's noteworthy, I guess, is that um, it took me seven years to complete undergrad. You know, I kind of went when I had, went to school when I had money for classes. Mm-hmm. And so, what would you do in between that? Worked in bookstores, okay, and read you know voraciously, and so you know part of my education occurred at Howard University, and part of it occurred in every bookstore that I worked in, uh, in in Vertigo Books and in you know Crown Books and Insights Books. So I mean, I worked in a bunch of different bookstores and stores that are probably not open now. Yeah, actually, none of the books the bookstores are open now, and. Um, but that was, you know, the kind of supplemental education that I got at that point in time. The backwards education started here. Oh. So, so, it, so it took you seven years to do undergrad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you pivot somehow to going to Rutgers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, right. So the, the thing is that I have a, a PhD, a master's, and a bachelor's in that order. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think you're the first human being. It might be. Have you met another human being who's who's ever said that? No, like, I haven't. No. Uh, so what the story is that I finished undergrad. I finished all my courses, uh, but I still owed the university um, 
like a couple thousand dollars, which was a lot of money, you know, right. especially for me at that point. So I couldn't get my degree. And, but I'd already finished my credits, and so I was off, you know, in graduate school. And, mm. you know, I applied and went to Rutgers um, where I, in the history program there. And I completed my master's and Ph.D. And then by the time I finished, uh, I was living in Atlanta, and I was teaching at Spelman College when I finished my dissertation. How old are you at that point? I was 33. And I sent my, um, my paperwork off, you know, to get my degree. So I was going to have a PhD, uh, and it was a joint program, PhD, master's program. Uh, and so I sent off my paperwork to get my master's and PhD, but forgot to get it notarized. And so come graduation week, they were like, yeah, you don't have a notarized form. We can't, you know, do anything. And so one, like, angelic woman in the administration let me run out and get this form notarized and FedEx it to her, and she just switched them out. But she said, I'll do that for your PhD, but I won't do it for, like, twice. You have to apply next year for your master's. And I was like, sure. So I got my PhD in 2003. And then the following year, I applied, and they sent me my master's in 2004. Were you in a panic? No, I, I kind of knew that I had done all the work, and you know, I, my dissertation had been approved. It was just kind of like these technicalities. Uh, and so they gave me my PhD in 2003, and I'd simply my paperwork for 2004 for my master's. And then three years later, I was kind of like, I had long since paid off you know, the debt that I owed to the university, but just had never gone back and actually gotten the paperwork for my bachelor's. And so in 2007, I, um, <laughs> I called up the university and said, you know, I'd like to actually get my degree. So uh, they are in that order, 2003, 2004, 2007. It's around that time that you start writing more, right? Around mm -hmm. 2007, 2008? So I had always been writing. I had... So uh, I also freelanced, I should say, during those years when right. I was like in and out of school. I freelanced at um, alternative papers in Washington, D.C. And at Howard, it was one? Is that it was one newspaper, um, uh, which was a good friend of mine. Uh, Eric Easter was the publisher of that. And uh, then from there, I went to the Washington City paper, and uh, which was at that point edited by David Carr. And So David Carr was there, and then... Tanahasi Coates came. Tanahasi and I came the same year. Uh, as really? a matter of fact, yeah. So David Carr came in. Tanahasi um, also went to Howard. right? He also went to Howard. Yeah. So we knew each other from Howard. Oh, okay. So you uh, guys were in. It's funny. now it's interesting because, in between the world and me, mm -hmm. his description of Howard, yeah, his, like first line is like, a weed smoke haze room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't in that room. You weren't in that room. <laughs> You were like, no, I, I, I... Yeah, I'll cut you all after the, uh, you, you yeah. leave the room. You're, you yeah. were pursuing love. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so he and I met, Tanahasi and I met at this... Um, uh, in, the, in the context of this environment of these young writers who were uh, in and around Howard and, you know, kind of various spots in D.C. And it was a vibrant, you know, writing culture at that point in time in the city. I mean, it still is, probably like much younger people. But, you know, this was that particular set of folk... Uh, and we were all very much influenced by hip hop and, you know, the aesthetic of hip hop and, uh, you know, these other people in the black arts movement who we were, you know, reading Sonia Sanchez and Amiri Baraka and Larry Neal and, uh, you know, the writers of that, that uh, generation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I was, you know, uh, writing in kind of like small outlets and David Carr came in, uh, you know, from Minnesota. 
And there was a track record with the Washington City paper in D.C., which, you know, they had a great deal of friction between uh, the paper and the black residents of the city. At that point, D.C. was, you know, two-thirds, more than two-thirds black. Uh, and the city paper had virtually no black representation there. That was the friction. Yeah. And people were thought of it as, like, this kind of white Bantu stand. But not only just the, the, the fact that there were no black people there, uh, it was the fact that there was this kind of sneering editorial tone um, which, you know, I think that people didn't understand Marion Barry and his hold that he had in the city. So people thought that maybe there were just these um, ignorant black people who kept electing him. Um, but his appeal was much more subtle and complex than that. And it was like, something that I think uh, required actually respecting the people who were voting for him to ask and inquire about, you know, what his relationship to the city was. And so that became a kind of point of contention. Like their coverage of Marion Barry was a metaphor of their coverage for black people. And, you know, Tanahasi calls me this day and was like, Yeah, this is new editor at the, the Washington City paper and uh he's going to you know, he wants to bring in more people of color and I was like, Really? Yeah, good luck with that. He was like, No, no, you should check him out, you know, and uh so that's how I wound up coming to the city paper and the two of us started the same year. David Carr has been uh, I think rightfully hailed as not only a great writer but a great editor and mm-hmm. seemingly a wonderful mentor mm-hmm. i'm sure you've probably thought and talked about him a lot mm-hmm. but now it's been a few years right three mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. three years now since he passed yeah about that yeah what do you think back on um i, I always say this you know about Carr was that he was you know likely the most honest person i'd ever met um and his honesty was hard won though uh, and because it was, you know, what comes out of, you know, uh, an addict's recovery and having to be able to look at yourself and call yourself on your own bullshit. And the fact that you are so willing to call yourself on it makes you, in some way, winds up giving you this kind of inverted path to authority to call other right. people on theirs. Agency to call out yeah, bullshit. Yeah, which is a, a really great skill for an editor. That's basically your job description. Editor and as reporter. An editor, as an editor, yeah, as that should be reporter. the one job requirement yeah. before you take a job as a reporter. Yeah, and the other thing about him is that he was very precise. And so uh, I would say to this day, like the voice in my head that's saying, do you know this? Did you double check this? Are you sure about this? That's Carr. <laughs> that's Carr's voice. Um and so, yeah, I mean, the first conversation I had with him, which was, like, kind of emblematic of, like, what this relationship was going to be like, was that I came in to interview, and, you know, I came in with uh, this portfolio with my clips in it and so on, and I walk into his office, and his office is dark. So I go to hit the light switch, and he's like, no, 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 don't turn on the light. And I was like, what? And he was like, just sit down. So we're sitting in his dark office, and... um I was like, you sure you don't want the light on? And he said, I spend a lot of time, I used to spend a lot of time in dark crack houses, and I'm still not used to overhead light. And I was like, okay, this dude is like, he's playing games. And he's like, no, 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 he's actually serious. Like, this is, this is him. This is his life. This is his life. And, um, and so he's like, yeah, give me your clips. And I was like, okay, I give him the clips. And he's like reading by the ambient light in the room. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is pretty good. You know, you're hired. You know, when can you start? And and that was that was my interaction with him. Uh, my first interaction with him. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, um, he's very much this outsized personality. 
And did that continue to be the case as you worked for him? Yeah, but the thing is about Carr is that uh, he he was exacting in his standards, and uh, God help you if you messed up. Like he would praise, like if you did something right, he would lavishly praise. But if you messed up, oof. Do you remember when you messed up? Yeah, I did. I got um, called out really. So I'm six three, and I left his office. I think I was like five eleven. Um, <laughs> Because I had made like, you know, I was in, you know, my 20s and kind of uh, suffering from a case of uh, male, um, male writerly omniscience, you know, it's like that uh, 20-something omniscient uh, thing, you think you've got it all figured out. And I had made some sloppy mistakes around the story and um, the car just called me on it and I was like, eesh. Um, but it was also like, important uh that there was someone who i respected who uh the next day when we came in we were back to square one Mm -hmm. it was like but you know what the what the standards are and and that was something that went for everyone you know there were uh you know everyone i won't even got name names of people but there were a few of us who were on the receiving end of a of a car tirade Mm. so you felt confident about yourself at that age yeah, really. you thought you knew everything. <laughs> really, I thought I had it figured out. Well, you had a PhD and a master's, and a well, not yet. I was working on my PhD at the You're... point, but but it's also, I think, uh, one of the more important things I think for writers, uh, especially for young writers, is to not let what you already know get in the way of what you need to learn. And so, to remain like think having it all figured out is a terrible position for a writer to be in, you know, because one, it's not true. You know, it can't be. It can't be true. And two, you don't know that it's not true, which makes you doubly uh, vulnerable, you know, or poorly positioned. Uh, and so the kind of open inquiring position is much more valuable for writers than the knowledgeable, sage, you know, let me hold forth position. So when did you break free of thinking you knew everything? I think with most people, like in life, you you live a little bit of life and learn that it's more complicated than you thought, or there are things that you thought you understood that you know maybe you didn't understand, uh, and uh, life proves you wrong in ways, mm-hmm. and you see things that you hadn't anticipated, uh, and so it also I think just became more useful to me as I was kind of doing this craft that it's like you have to. You have to to have a certain reservoir of knowledge, and that's great, that's valuable, but it's never as useful as your own curiosity about the next thing. So then what became the next thing for you? I don't think there's been a succession of next things. I think it was always like whatever the next story was. You know, at one point I was really very much interested in writing about hip-hop, and now I haven't written about that culture in probably 10 years. Uh, and at one point, I was more interested in writing in the first person, and I don't haven't written anything in the first person in quite a while. Uh, and you know, interestingly enough, uh, you know, I've had you know various kinds of things that have held my interest at different points in time, like oh, I want to read a lot about this, and I've always been interested in science, and it's like oh, I'm going to you know get into this, and I've read this book or you know about physics or whatever. And then I'll find the next thing that I'm curious about. And, you know, then I'll be working on that. Your bookishness is something, not only because we're in your office mm-hmm. and there's a lot of books around, mm-hmm. but you talk about 
doing undergrad seven years and Mm -hmm. part-time at school, part-time working at bookstores Mm -hmm. and just reading. And I'm always fascinated people who spend a lot of their time inside these fictitious or mm-hmm. nonfiction worlds. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that comes from? Uh, I think it's also interesting. I, I remember I had the opposite of the problem. I guess my father had the opposite of the problem that some parents have, which is that he would try to get me to go outside. Yeah. You know, I was like very much intent on, you know, being in the house reading and please stop reading and yeah, learning things. Go, go out, go out. And, you know. But it was also interesting too, because there was a part of the world that you, you learned through books and there's a part of the world that you only learn through interaction with other people. And, um, you know, those things are equally, you know, important. And then there's this other layer of it, you know, which is that, when people see me, they don't think bookish. I look the opposite. You know, I'm a large, bald black man. I'm 6'3". You know, I look like uh, a former offensive lineman or a linebacker <laughs> or something. And people always, um, you know, I go through the world and people presume I'm an ex-football player. And, you know, I'm not. I didn't play football. I did play baseball. But mm. uh, I wasn't, um, you know, sports, I was never preoccupied with sports or pursuing sports. Uh, and so I think that was part of it, too, like trying to figure out how to balance those those two things that I was interested in. And in some ways, I almost resented people pushing, because I was built a particular way, pushing a one set of interests when I had this other set of things I was really trying to do. Are you happiest when reading? Um, now... I'm usually happy reading, but I don't know if that's when I'm happiest. Uh, just on the j- daily kind of mundane thing, you know, very cliche, I'm very happy around my daughter, you know, um, who is 11 weeks old and, you know, she's, you know, everything and you get to see like every little development with her and, you know, she learns and so on. And, um, you know, I'm also uh, very happy when I've just filed something you know oh, it's the best. yeah no when i've worked very hard on something and then you've hit send you yeah. know on like a final edit of it and you know that's a very good feeling that's that quote i mm-hmm. mean I, i've said this before on here but it's like i hate writing i love having written I love having written that's right <laughs> you send that oh and then the worst part is you get notes from the editor that's right well it's so funny because i get this question from um from young people or sometimes people who are aspiring writers like when will it be fun and i was like i don't know <laughs> I, I have no idea it has not gotten fun yet you know but you keep doing it because you like the after effect of it you know yeah i do mm-hmm. <laughs> but but sometimes i wish i didn't yeah sure it's, but it's like any other habit you know it's like any other drug right any other drug is and that it, what it's like <laughs> it, well you haven't you haven't done anything I, no frame of I still cannot believe that you do you rarely drink you've uh-huh. never smoked uh-huh. weed ever right <laughs> all right look when you're 70 you come out to los angeles <laughs> right. we'll still be, be corrupted you <laughs> come out i'll help you out okay <laughs> I'll put that on my calendar. Sure. Yeah, put it on the GCAL right, right. now. <laughs> right. 30 year reminder. I can do that. The 30th anniversary of this interview. <laughs> oh, God. We'll do it again. Uh-huh. I mean, it is in some way. I mean, you. it's it's a high. Mm-hmm. It's like anything that makes us happier, makes us feel good. It feels great. The high feels great. Mm-hmm. And then everything else doesn't feel as good. Yeah, but I think, 
for um, for for writers, I think that very often it's the like the stimulation, the external stimuli too that prompt you to write that are great. Like sometimes that's a conversation. You know, you have a really intriguing conversation and it sets the neurons to firing. And, mm-hmm. You know, you're like, oh, okay, I'm thinking about this. Sometimes it's like music. Um, sometimes it's something that you've read. Uh, you know, sometimes it's a, a walk. You know, that you've taken and you start putting together ideas and you want to express them. So even outside of it, like the other side is that, you know, writing is not fun. Not having written is less fun than writing. Right. That's, <laughs> so, that's right. the come down. Exactly. The, the absence of the come down. Behind. Yeah. So yeah. you're going like, especially if it's an idea that you think is valuable and you haven't expressed it. You know, you're like, oh man, I should have like used that. You know, because those things, are, those ideas are fleeting. They come when they come, you know, and you have to make use of it. Taking a quick break from the conversation with Jelani. We've been doing this show for uh, a little over a year now, and in that time we've done 60 plus episodes, and a lot of interesting people have come on. Uh, Recently we had Jenny Slate, Malcolm Gladwell, A.O. Scott, Patricia Lockwood, Lena Waith. If you go through our back catalog, you'll see some really wonderful episodes with people like Sherman Alexi, Wesley Morris, Andy Greenwald, Amy Nicholson, Zoe Kazan, Mackenzie Davis. We've been blessed to have good guests on. We've also been blessed to have some nice things written about the podcast. Uh, Most recently, IndieWire wrote about episode 50 with my mom. I don't know why we have to keep going over this episode, but it is very nice that people seem to like my mom. I think people like my mom more than me. Anyway, that's another thing. But as an independent show without a larger apparatus promoting, there are a couple things you can do to help. Uh, For one... Just sharing the show with a friend. Secondly, just putting it on your Twitter and Facebook and saying, oh, this thing that I listened to for an hour was not a complete waste of time. That helps us out. And thirdly, the biggest thing, which no one likes to do, but I have to ask. An iTunes review, they can be a sentence. They can be three words. They can be funny. They can be sad. They can be optimistic. They can be very supportive. They can be much shorter than this rambling speech I'm giving. Any positive sentiment on iTunes really does help new listeners find the show. Anyway, that's it for now. I promise to not bring up iTunes reviews for like two to three months. Thank you in advance for your help and support. Now, back to Jelani. How have you managed to navigate, or rather balance, teaching, writing, you know, have this kid, mm-hmm. a, a partner in life? Mm-hmm. How do you navigate that? How do you balance that? Um, I think that's a big question for everybody, you know, now. Like, that's a, a thing that um, we're all trying to figure out. For me, it's been one good thing, I think, is that I like to teach, <laughs> and so that is helpful. Uh, and you get lots of uh, you know stimulating discussion from you know your classroom mm-hmm. and, and all that. And so, so the brain is active. Yeah, so your brain often. is active. You know, um, and that's been you know, I guess very helpful. But if people ask me that question all the time, I'm like, I don't really know how to answer it. I just 
it's like juggling. You know, like if you tell someone how to juggle, I can't tell you how to juggle. You right. just juggle. You just start and practice until you do it. Um, so it's something like that. But it's also, I guess, the, the fact that um, this is exactly when I was that person who was uh, kind of on the pay per semester <laughs> agenda um, at 21, 22, 23. This is exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And so if I'm ever tired, it's the kind of fatigue that comes from doing the things that you want to do. And that's not something that very many people get in this world, unfortunately. It's interesting. There's a neatness to your trajectory right now. Mm -hmm. It's like you wanted to do something when you were 18. You recognize what that was. And now it's it's been actualized. Mm -hmm. Do your aspirations or desires ever like dovetail out of those confines? Like, do you ever want something that you didn't think you wanted? Mm-hmm. Uh, not really. You know, <laughs> I don't know if that makes me like predictable or, or boring or whatever, but, uh, it I makes have, you confusing been, to me, but well, it's also, also the route uh, in retrospect, you know, we impose narrative on things, right? So in retrospect, it looks like a straight path. Um, Except for the education, that's yeah, more circuitous. Kind of circuitous, you know, and uh, you know, I have this interest in journalism and history, and for most of my life, I thought that those had to be different things. Uh, I didn't think that I could meld them together in any kind of way that made sense. But mm-hmm. I actually do that now. You know, that the sense of me that the part of me that thinks about things historically and the part of me that thinks about things journalistically complement each other uh, and in a way that I suspected they could, but for a large part of my life was told, you know, they couldn't. Uh, and also, you know, one of the things that I have written about, um, I guess, substantially has been about race and, you know, race in the United States, race and racism. And for me, writing about those things, uh, I feel like a sense of mission that there are people whose voices don't get heard. And I've been fortunate enough to be in a position where my voice does, um, you know, at least in certain contexts it does. And I want to use that wisely, you know. So uh, back to the question of balancing, I think that it's just a matter of, you know, so Amiri Baraka, you know, the poet said uh, that for people who are concerned with, you know, justice in the world, they don't get to sit in a, secluded tower and, you know, kind of ceremoniously uh, dip their quill in ink and say, I shall now commence with writing. He's like, you're always like writing on on the battlefield, so to speak. And uh, he told me that when I was really young. And I think that that has wound up being, uh, it was very sage information to pass along because I think that's been the case too. Your voice especially now is amplified. You started writing at the New Yorker in 2013. Mm-hmm. In 2012, yeah. 2012, yeah. and you became a staff member in 2015. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think you'd find a place that wanted exactly the type of thing that you said people had projected, mm-hmm. which was the blending of journalism and history? Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't say that I was certain that that would happen. And um, as a matter of fact, I was kind of like, Almost, I wasn't certain, but I kind of suspected that it would not happen at some point, not long before I started at the New Yorker. And 
You know, the first thing that I wrote for the New Yorker uh, was a piece about Trayvon Martin. But at that point, it was like this little-known situation that was in Florida. And I was talking with an editor there, um, Amy Davidson, and she was like, do you know anything about this story here? And I was like, yeah, I've been you know, following it. And she was like, maybe you want to like dig into it and you know, write something about it. And I was like, sure. And so I jumped on and I wrote this thing in 2012, in the spring. And I had no idea that I would wind up following that story, that there would be a Trayvon Martin, that there would be a Jordan Davis, that there would be a Michael Brown, um, that there would be a Rakia Boyd, that there would be um, a uh, Eric Garner, that we would talk about this entire lineage um, of instances of black people who were um, prematurely dead and that that would have the kind of weight, especially in the context of there being a black presidency, uh, that that it would have the kind of weight and urgency that it, it did. And so you almost kind of like fell down this rabbit hole. And because I was someone who had written, um, and you know, when I, in graduate school I wrote a doctoral dissertation about civil rights and the Cold War. And so I was familiar with like these issues and I had been thinking about these issues uh, for most of my life at that point. And so it gave me a kind of position. Of course, that's not the only thing that you know I write about. As a matter of fact, I'm about to write something about comedy um, for uh, the website and contemporary comedy. And you know, and then I'm going to write something about Donald Trump and Bill Clinton. You know, and it, it, my interests were not kind of neatly confined to race, but that was a large part of what I was writing about, and it was important. I think it was important to be able to write about it at that point. Um, you know, because I think the other thing that's like revolutionary about you know this moment we found ourselves in was that all of a sudden there was documentation for things that black people had been saying were happening you know for years and years. And if I was going kind of circling all the way back to the beginning, to the conversations that my mother and father had about their relationships with the police and Hazelhurst and Bessemer and Pipe Shop, Pipe Shop, uh, and then you know my own interactions with the police as a young person, uh, uh, and you know recognizing the way that those dynamics have implications. When you magnify them out, they wind up actually becoming social phenomena, not just individual experiences. And, you know, I wanted to, to be able to talk about those things. And you did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. in, in a way that I, I remember when they were happening, mm -hmm. there were a few writers that you had to read. And, mm -hmm. and, and you very quickly became one of those voices. Mm-hmm. I always well, thought, you. and I always thought to myself, um, I wonder what, I wonder how much responsibility you feel. Because mm -hmm. there's like a, you mentioned you're just in Florida. The Trayvon Martin thing was not the Trayvon Martin thing. Mm -hmm. no, no, at that point, yeah. And, and what followed was like some sort of tragic serendipity mm -hmm. that you ended up having, not having, but had the space to write about these things and you did you feel an obligation to do it though uh i think i did uh you know one reason being that i knew how to do it i knew how to cover right. the stories like anybody who has covered a beat like if you are uh you know someone who has written about housing for a long time and then the housing market craters you know you have a kind of 
um, working knowledge that gives you an advantage, like for someone as opposed to someone who's just kind of parachuting into that beat, uh, or somebody who covers, you know, the Senate, and now you have this story about the Supreme Court confirmation or whatever. Like you have advantages in writing that story, and that may not be the only story that you you can write, but this is something that you have done the groundwork for, and so I felt a responsibility in the sense that. It's like I know this information, and I've been to these uh, communities, and I have been you know, studying these issues for a really long time and involved with, uh, even when I wouldn't have said interviewing people who had been, had various relationships to them, uh, to these issues, I had been interacting, you know, in this world for a really long time. And so I felt I was, I should do that. Yeah. How did you work past the anger? And the frustration of this, yeah. uh, of the things that were happening in front of you and that you were reporting on. Yeah, who says, who says that? <laughs> Since I've worked past that. Um, well, rather not worked past it, but mm-hmm. worked past it enough to, to keep jo- doing your job. I think that actually makes it easier to do the job because I care about what I'm writing about. And that doesn't make you, give you an excuse to be like a partisan. You have to actually bring nuance and subtlety to something. You have to look at like the possible, look at it from as many possible angles as you can. But also, it's easier for me, at least, to write when I care about something. Um, you go to this place and you say, uh, you know, what happened here? Uh, was it something that should not have happened? Was there a reasonable uh, route to there being a different outcome, you know, here? Uh, how does it connect to the things that we've seen, you know, in the part of American history that we don't like to talk about, you know, uh, the part that does not make, you know, America look exceptional. Um, and yeah, I think you wind up, you know, going to Ferguson or going to Charleston, you know, or um, any of the kind of stations of the cross <laughs> I think that where I've I've been in you know the past five years you go to all those places and you know the stories present themselves and or you do some digging and find things that you know maybe people hadn't thought about or you hadn't thought about and um and I think that winds up being the best use for the anger was there something that happened in that moment in time or how we look at it now that you think uh, is a misconception of those mm. four or five years that you were reporting about this. So one of the things that's interesting, I think, is that there's a certain kind of impatience. And uh, I get this uh, when sometimes people will email me and, and, you know, why are you still talking about this? Why do you keep talking about this? Why are you? And I think the American sense of itself in some ways is very fragile and, underdeveloped because it's not the kind of full maturity that wherein people can look at themselves and say I'm flawed but decent fundamentally decent and you know but I still should work on my flaws I think we have the kind of um, much more adolescent approach to uh, understanding ourselves as a society, or very, very often do, mm-hmm. where we want unqualified praise only. And if you say anything critical, you're thereby trying to tear someone down, or or tear the country down. Or you know, one of my favorite things that I hear is that 
um, by talking about race, you create racism. I was like, well, you know, we have had racism in this country since the inception of it, before black people had any mechanism to talk about this in a kind of uh, mass way. Right, and if so if the opposite <laughs> was true, when it was less discussed, right. and it didn't go away, how do you so how do how do so you make the, the argument now? What's the right. what's the answer then? Yeah, and so you also know that you know there's some people who just they won't they're not able to hear this, and you're looking at this thing. You know, people's lives depend on this, and you know, uh, like Tamir Rice in you know Ohio, and he's you know killed you know a 12 year old boy. You know he was killed by a police officer, and he's playing with a toy gun. How does that happen? You know, uh, and moreover, how do we not look at this as a kind of broader systemic indictment, you know, about you know, the American relationship to violence, about the American relationship with state violence, uh, state violence and its relationship to race, uh, the history of guns uh, and, you know, firearms in this country and the Second Amendment's relationship to, you know, needing a militia that could put down slave revolts. <laughs> you know, when we talk about, you know, needing a well-regulated uh, militia. You're like, well, okay, well, what do we need these militias for? At the point in time that we're talking about here, one of the real concerns there is slave revolts. And, and so those dots, you know, of history and contemporary implications of it are, are not that hard to connect if you are actually willing to look at the society for what it is and where we are. See, it. that's, you use the word able. Mm-hmm. People are not able to listen to it. And mm-hmm. my first thought was, are they not able or are they not willing? Because mm-hmm. I don't know if those are the same. Yeah. I, I think that what I mean by that is that you, people have not reached the level of development <laughs> that would facilitate them looking at these, looking at the world as it this is. This is really like mm-hmm. maturation, childhood to adulthood. Right. That you're saying they're not developed enough. Right. And we also think that like when we talk about the United States as an exceptional society is like one of the worst things that we can do, you know, because uh, one, it lends itself to a particular kind of myopic view of the rest of the world. You know, if we're exceptional, what is everyone else? And, you know, it then also lends itself to this idea that history is a resume as opposed to it being a chronicle of, uh, you know, the various interactions of various peoples with various forces institutions and other peoples and you know some of those things being motivated by humane concerns and very many of them being concerned motivated by uh much more base concerns and selfish motivations and inhumane motivations and and so at the end of the day it becomes difficult for americans to understand themselves as fallible humans and it's a society created by fallible humans. Is that across the board? No, it's not. But I think the strand of it is so prominent that it, it leads to the, the kind of... Um, or rather, maybe I'll, I'll be more specific. Do you think it's a problem predominantly with white people? I think that... Um, Exceptionalism, infallibility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that the... Uh, the American conception of whiteness was meant to convey exactly those things. You know, a certain kind of entitlement, a, a kind of infallibility, uh, and a kind of uh, naive self-perception or immature self-perception. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that that has been, you know, a curse, you know, in the society. When we 
look at the founders, you know, and you know these people who had conceptualized uh, a society with more democratic freedom than had existed previously, but also reconcile themselves to the idea of holding people in slavery, of selling, and what the institution of slavery was, selling human beings, splitting up families, um, the organized rape of women. Like all of those things were, were sanctionable, were, were um, valid and permissible you know, under this new democratic regime. And so if we can look at one part of that story, you know, the genius part of it, and not look at the other part of it, which is like the cold, inhumane, or sadistic part of it, uh, then we're kind of cooking the history books. And if we don't understand the, the that's the real utility of, his, of history, to be able to understand the exact dimensions of human behavior uh, and what humans are capable of doing at any given moment in the present by understanding what they've been able to do at various moments in the past. But we're getting very close to, or rather, it feels in modern times that we are like inching towards Fahrenheit 451 mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. not wanting to look back. Mm-hmm. Part of your job as a journalist is to uh, not only remind people of the past, but illuminate upon it. Mm-hmm. To show people things that they don't want to see. Right. right. I think that's what, what n- not just historians and journalists, but I think a lot of people have a, um, you know, their kind of professional purview. Any people who are, I guess, charged with educating, you know, the public uh, in any way, shape, or form, very often that means showing people things that they don't want to see. If you're going to be honest, I think if you're going to do it with integrity, that's part of it. I guess, do you think people are less interested in how we got here than we were like a decade ago, were people mm-hmm. more inclined to revisit the trajectory of America mm-hmm. than we are now? Because we, we're in this Trump era, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, which is built on the backs of it's built on the back of ignorance. It's built mm-hmm. on the back of not reading, mm-hmm. not educating, not uh, fact checking. A, a, a particular kind of um, revisionist history. Well, it's certainly a revisionist history, but also a kind of. Um, Ethnic entitlement, you know, a particular kind of uh, outsider, you know, the politics of, of populist resentment of outsiders, quote unquote, mm. of the other, um, whoever that might be, uh, you know, a prominent strand of misogyny, uh, self-righteous a, ignorance, a kind of self-righteousness, right, that is uh, enabled by the absence of information, you know, one uh, one sense of um, one sense of their righteousness and their actual uh, information existing in opposite proportions, you know, like you know those dynamics. All of this, yeah, all those things, right? There's a prominent strand of that in American history, and so when we were talking about how did we get here, it was one of those questions that meant that we hadn't been paying attention because we made the comparison with George Wallace, and we we're like, oh, okay, yeah, it's George Wallace in 1968, but we could have also looked at. Strom Thurmond in 1948, or we could have looked at Tom Watson in 1896 mm-hmm. and in 1900 uh, and the Populist Party. You talked and about in a speech uh, Joseph McCarthy 
Yeah, being, Joseph McCarthy. Being pugnacious yeah. and someone who right. could like be in a bar fight that had mm-hmm. a common man appeal. Right. Which is clear parallels to Donald Trump. Yeah, the McCarthyism. And, the, you know, McCarthy and uh, Trump had an actual tangible connection uh, in the form of Roy Cohn, you know, who was an aide to mm. Joe McCarthy and a mentor to Donald Trump. Uh, and you saw that particular kind of pugnaciousness uh, and, you know, the uh, belief that you never uh, retreat, you always go on the attack, you know. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you saw, especially in their relationship to the media and the press, uh, were these connections between McCarthyism and, and Trumpism, uh, where I was saying you know, previously, if you lie exponentially, and people can only fact check arithmetically, you wind up lying at a rate quicker than people can tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And that was very much the case in the 1950s uh, when, when McCarthy uh, was you know, on the political scene. And we found that now, in an era where you know, there are all these uh, technologies of mass communication and social media, it may even be more, the, more so the case you know, with you know the Donald Trump. And last time I checked, had I think twenty eight million Twitter followers. Uh, who who knows how many of those are actual people? Uh, but you're and able to more than enough, right? More than enough, right? A frightening number of them. You're actually able to put out information, or, or rather, put out disinformation at a huge rate, and then that gets shared around. Uh, and at the same time, people have a very low uh, estimation of the, truth, the truthfulness of mass media, the kind of establishment media. See, what does it say about people? And this is obviously maybe a little fickle, but mm-hmm. you go uh, on Twitter, which mm-hmm. is where a lot of people consume information and mm-hmm. consume news. And if you look at a tweet that is hyperbolic in mm-hmm. nature, you'll notice it has a whole bunch of retweets, favorites, replies. Soon after that, if the person is marginally sane, you'll see a correction. Mm-hmm. And the correction tweet, without hyperbole, mm-hmm. gets shared less. The truth is getting chosen to be shared less. Mm-hmm. Well, but, but I think it's also, um, it's kind of geared toward that because demagogues don't uh, appeal generally to your rationality. And they don't appeal to your sense of the dispassionate pursuit of truth. They, they appeal to your sense of indignation and your, uh, or validate your resentments uh, about the world. And they're very much on this kind of limbic appeal. And we're talking about, you know, cerebral appeal in comparison. And so you, you wind up with a philosophical debate, like are humans more rational or emotional? And except that it's playing out in the politics of uh, an election in which the winner gets control of a nuclear arsenal you know that becomes you know that kind of horrifying idea uh but but yeah so i think that that's been you know one of the things about about dealing with this uh tradition of of populist demagogues and the racial resentment that they have you know typically stirred up and the way they've used it to their advantage uh and uh you know, in American history. So this is not the first time we've seen this. You know, we had the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882 and with the Immigration Restriction Act of 1924, uh, which was geared at keeping the undesirable immigrants, you know, largely Jews, out of the country. And, you know, we had the 
gentlemen's agreement in I believe it was 1906, 1908 uh, to prevent the in, the immigration of Japanese, you know, into the country. And so the dynamics that I, I talk about, especially I write a lot about race as it relates to black people, but they're, no, they're not exclusively black. Like, they're the ways in which democracy becomes curtailed uh, and in which uh, a kind of um, cult of whiteness became enshrined in American society and the way it's replicated and defended itself. Are humans more emotional or rational? <laughs> I don't know, but I've built my career and my staked my whole life on the idea that we are more rational, or at least appeals to rationality can can get us um, to think beyond the appeals of emotion. I mean, appeals emotion has its place, you know, with music or art and culture and so on. But I think you did that because you're more rational. Mm-hmm. I hope so. <laughs> it seems like well, it seems, but that that applies to all facets of you so mm-hmm. so much as I know you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's like in college the time where emotions and hormones do take mm-hmm. over you opted for rationality Being methodical and kind yeah. of yeah. yeah maybe I mean I guess I have my own kind of quirks you know individual quirks too and you know I don't want to make it seem like I'm Mr. Spock uh, but, <laughs> but I think that uh, I think all of us though too who write have some faith in the idea. Certainly all of us who teach, if we don't believe that humans uh, can be appealed to rationally to kind of think in reasonable ways, then then why do any of this? (laughs) Now you're asking the big ones. Yeah. (laughs) I think humans are probably more emotional, especially Mm -hmm. right now, Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons that we don't have to get into. But there's a part of me that believes not only as a writer, but as a human that I can appeal to their emotion, that Mm -hmm. I can somehow navigate whatever tornado of emotions is is swirling inside of them, that I can somehow get into that tornado and mitigate. Mm -hmm. But maybe that's naive. But I mean, so when you look at, um, you know, for instance, Lincoln's uh, second inaugural speech, which is... By the way, I love this. I I talk about emotions, and you're like, all right, we're going to go back to Lincoln now. But no, but no, but no. I'm actually, I'm I'm going to emotion, right? Like, when you look at that speech, right, which is a gorgeous speech, it's like um, one of the kind of great portions of American literature. But Lincoln is making, you know, appeals that you could consider were emotional. Like, he understood the prosecution of the war. He understood the um, constitutional implications of secession and all these other things. But when he was talking in this you know, moment, he was talking in a very a way that I think was meant to register with the emotions and sentiments of the people who had been through, at that point, uh, three years of war, uh, almost four years of war, actually, at that point. And um, he is saying to them, you know, this is uh, what what this has wrought. And so I think that it's possible that you can appeal to emotion in a way that winds up being useful. I mean, King, you know, is, a other, is another example mm. of that. We talk about people who use great oratory, you know. It doesn't always have to be to this demagogic end. And so I don't think that, you know, 
the emotional part of us is necessarily damning. Uh, I, but I think that it has certain vulnerabilities that we've become more, have become more and more visible to us in the last year. But the fascinating complexity of humans is that you and I can sit here and think uh, Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. not demagogic or demagogic, demagogic to good ends. Mm-hmm. Can or, there be a good demagogue? Can there be a good, de- or I look at this poster you have mm-hmm. of James Baldwin, mm-hmm. one of the most dynamic mm-hmm. speakers. You hear him talk and you think you can sit there all day and hear him go on. Mm-hmm. He was a child preacher, yeah. But there are people who think about Martin Luther King in mm-hmm. this country. There are people who probably don't think about James Baldwin. If they saw James Baldwin, they would think, mm-hmm. that's not for me. Right. Sure. Or rather, I don't like what they're saying. And even worse, what they're saying is dangerous. Mm-hmm. What then do we do with people like that? So I think that um, that's where you get the kind of like basic idea of it, of people having a right to express themselves. You know, like you don't agree. And this is like another thing that has been, you know, very fraught, especially like, you know, on college campuses now. Right, because you have students, yeah. I'm sure, who say mm-hmm. things that are against what you believe. Sure. At least I hope so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you try to, uh, and if you're, I think, a good or conscientious teacher, you have to try to mitigate the likelihood of other students jumping on the one person with the minority view, right. irrespective of where you stand in relation to that person. Because it's not views. productive. Right. It's, it's not, not productive. It's not educational. No. You know? And it leads to exactly the kind of thing I was telling you was useless to me as a young person, that sense of omniscience, like, oh, I have it all figured out. Of course, this is how it works, and so on. Um, and it's very easy, I guess, to give you a, a boxing metaphor, yeah, you know, my father and grandfather were boxers, um, and you know, as a young person, you know, I would spar and you know, I'd hit the heavy bag and everything, and you know, it's like, oh, this is great, and I was learning, you know, the, the different punches and different drills and different routines, and the first time I was like really good with the heavy bag, the first time I actually sparred with someone, I was struck by how much more difficult it is when someone's actually swinging back. <laughs> I don't get to just punch this and <laughs> right, nothing happens exactly. back to me. <laughs> but it's that same thing. Like You have this very smug sense of yourself when you're in this room where everyone agrees with you and no one is swinging back. But it actually does you a disservice because it gives you this inflated sense of your own abilities because you've never actually sparred. Uh, and you're going like, oh, wow. <laughs> um, this is much more complicated than I thought it was. Mm. Uh, and I think that that's like the useful part of it. Uh, and then unfortunately now, we're at this place where you know we've seen you know this kind of intolerance of people. We want to you know ban entire populations or you know um, taint people with this you know brush of uh, violence based upon you know your perception of who this group is or who is in this group and so on. I like the idea of sparring mm-hmm. in, in a healthy, productive way, mm-hmm. and this immediately makes me think about. The times I've seen you on CNN mm-hmm. or MSNBC, I believe. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. you've been on Fox. Have you been on Fox? Yeah, I've before? been on Fox. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so you are brought on those shows mm-hmm. to bring a very specific worldview, mm-hmm. often around uh, people who do not share. Maybe mm-hmm. on MSNBC a little more. Mm-hmm. 
you've done the sparring there. I've seen it. Mm-hmm. What do you make of it as someone who's like in the battleground in, in the trenches? <laughs> well, I think cable- by the way, if if we had a video of that face you just <laughs> gave me. <laughs> Right now, that says yeah. it all for this answer. But go ahead. Right, but I, I think that like the the context of this discussion in cable news is is like very fraught, um, because in some ways, that's not, um, you know, it, and I will say this across the board. Like there's varying degrees of you know useful utility, um, you know. So I was on Melissa Harris Perry's show a lot when that was on, and um, I'm still sometimes a guest on Chris Hayes' show, and I think that those are really useful outlets. Um, but, you know, that notwithstanding, like in cable now, um, especially in, you know, some outlets more than others, I think CNN is probably more guilty of this than other um, ones, but it almost has become uh, like a sideshow mm-hmm. or like a sports coverage. Well, I think uh, someone made the comparison of, to like professional wrestling you know, wherein they're kind of these caricatures and people play a particular role and they go through a kind of mock exercise of, you know, uh, you know, beating each other up and so on. And, and it's really all pantomime. But, um, and, you know, that has a particular part, you know, in, in the way that uh, things have played themselves out now in terms of the amount of um, dissension and uh you know, conflict, I think, that we've seen across political lines now. Uh, in some ways, that's just like the kind of function of the old newspaper model in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, where people had newspapers that very clearly said, like our idea of these objective papers that are supposed to tell both sides of the story, like those are relatively newer inventions because they were, you know, these newspapers that had their political biases very clear. Like if you were the Hearst paper, you know, you had one perspective. If you were a Pulitzer paper, you know, you likely had a different perspective. And so they're uh, a kind of replication of that we've seen in cable news and where people get their information. Uh, and I don't know how you get around that. Uh, and I, I don't think we have fully grappled with what the implications of um, the 2016 election were for how people go about producing news and information. Uh, and so getting back to the point you were saying about me, like being there, is that sometimes it's valuable to have a forum to you know, participate in those discussions. Sometimes it's really not. Uh, and uh, it's hard to know which one of those things it'll be at any given moment. But sometimes it goes by host, you know, too, or, you know, what show it is or, or or who? Um, but sorry what, if I'm kind of meandering. Sorry. What other public sparring is there? Because mm-hmm. I, I, the, the, the point I'm trying to get at is what you said about the boxing. is mm-hmm. It is important to not just hit a bag by right. yourself. That's true. It does not get you anywhere mm-hmm. in, the, in the long run. But what's the forum for it? I mean, what, what's the right? What's the appropriate one? Are there any actual real outlets for it? Because you going on Fox or, mm-hmm. or CNN, for a lot of people, that's the first time they not only get your perspective or they, they hear about you, but like that's something new to them because they're not reading your mm-hmm. pieces in mm-hmm. The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. They don't follow you on Twitter. They, they're not part of that conversation that we have fit our own little bubble into. 
Yeah, I think some of it's like very basic is in kind of interacting with people who disagree with you. Uh, and I think that which you know, used to be a great thing, right? It used I to mean, be a great thing, right? Like the Vidal Buckley mm-hmm. thing is like a right, prime, right, right. prime example yeah, of. True. Th- th- I love that documentary. Mm-hmm, I love mm-hmm. reading about this. Is people excited to fight back, and there was an animosity there, and it turned into something uglier and mm-hmm. more ad hominem. Yeah, more, more, more base. But, but the idea of it, uh, you know, or even you know Baldwin who who debated Buckley, um, and you know, the idea that it is like this public. Um, forum and you know we're all engaged in it we're all going to you know kind of debate back and forth and now we have this idea that we have a unqualified right and a unredeemable wrong and they neatly conform to our particular worldview versus the other um, person's worldview and you know that notwithstanding you know I think that uh, like universities have a responsibility um, in this that we should be having conversations or we should be sponsoring this, uh, you know, this kind of dialogue and this kind of interaction across lines. Uh, I think that, you know, the internet has created, unfortunately, it's kind of a la carte approaches to these things where you can take what you want uh, as opposed to saying that we have access to a staggering array of perspectives that are different from our own. So I don't, just read liberal organizations or liberal outlets. You know, I read you know, the Wall Street Journal or I read the National Review. And, um, you know, I haven't, if I read Breitbart, it's, you know, because I'm about to say what's wrong with Breitbart. I haven't, that's not, like, my particular parameters have not gotten that far. Right. Um, well, there's a level of sanity you want right, to maintain. Yeah, there's a certain level well. of sanity. You have a certain minimum basic requirements. <laughs> Before you get to engage, to with be people. okay. Yeah. Is there a conservatism that you have read or bumped up against that you perceive as okay? Not my idea of how mm-hmm. to live and operate in this world, but that's reasonable. Um, sure, sure. I mean, especially I think in terms of foreign policy, it's probably more um, reasonable. You know, like when you know uh, liberals and conservatives disagree on issues of. Uh, foreign policy, it tends to be much more rational uh, than, you know, when people talk about things in, you know, the contemporary context. So uh, I don't agree with, you know, Kevin Williamson at the National Review, uh, you know, but I, very often, but uh, I appreciate his work and I read him regularly and uh, David French there too. And uh, I read Jennifer Rubin and um, the Washington Post, you know, who's also, you know, a conservative columnist. And, you know, there are various other folk, you know, whose ideas I'm interested in. Where's, uh, oh, there he is, Robert Kagan <laughs> is uh, right there. I'm going back through that. And, you know, he's a conservative, uh, but he writes interesting things about foreign policy. And so I, you know, want to know what he thinks about those things. Yeah, absolutely. Um but I don't think, actually, by the way, that that should be used um, to cloak what's happening in American politics right now. I think that what's happening under the Trump administration is different like, than it is, even though I just said that there's like this long tradition, uh, I think that is you know, kind of substantially different from the, t- the traditional para- parameters of conservative versus liberal thought, you know? Um, where we're actually talking about banning people on the basis of their religion or, uh, you know, ridiculing people with disabilities or any of those things. I, I do think that there are 
particular points where you say, all right, this is out, this is out of bounds, and unfortunately that's where we are. You wrote, the anti-vaccination movement can only exist because few living Americans can recall what polio actually did to people. Mm-hmm. I fear the same is true of fascism. Yeah, yeah. I think that we have a, a generational sensibility uh, that sometimes fades you know, when it is you know, bequeathed or to the second generation or the third generation. And so for people who grew up in the era of polio, they have a very different um, understanding of vaccines than you know, the current era of people are saying, well, okay, I don't want to vaccinate my children. And for the same thing, the people who grew up in the era of fascism, or those of us who kind of study it and pay attention to it historically, are much more alarmed and much more defensive about um, you know, the elements of authoritarianism that we've seen kind of popping up with varying degrees of success um, you know, across the world and global politics even. Uh, and so authoritarian uh, regimes and you know, really fairly nationalistic ones as well. So absent that first person um, recognition of what these things are, we're left with history. And we have to be more cognizant of history than we have been. And we tend to, to be a very ahistorical society as it is. Um, but that's the thing, you know, the best um, defense that we have. Where are we on time? I have two more questions. Oh, okay. These are specifically, uh, these are especially dire times. Um, you just brought a kid into mm-hmm. this universe. Mm-hmm. Is that what gives you hope? Is that there's a younger generation coming in? I mean, how, as a journalist, but as also a human, what is moving you forward in the day? Uh, indirectly, it's the, um, yeah, indirectly, like having a child, yeah. But I think in the bigger sense, the more global sense, I think it's that generationally, um, and going back to, I guess, connected ties to Baldwin, where to you know paraphrase him, he said each generation has to owes itself um, owes it to itself to attempt the impossible because each previous generation achieved something that their parents would have thought was not possible, and so, or I translate that more d- directly into saying there are people before us who face longer odds than we than we do right now, and have prevailed against those longer odds. And so we have the responsibility of, you know, maintaining the hope that we can prevail as well. Mm. Can you give me that book right there, the uh, Jennifer Egan book? Oh yeah, yeah, Visit from the Gold Squad. I saw this halfway through the interview, uh-huh. and it immediately dawned on me about generations, <laughs> but also this opening quote mm-hmm. that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, it's by Proust, and I just want to read this mm-hmm. part. Uh, poets claim that we recapture for a moment the self that we were long ago when we enter some house or garden in which we used to live in our youth. But these are most hazardous pilgrimages, which end as often in disappointment as in success. It is in ourselves that we should rather seek to find those fixed places contemporaneous with different years. Mm -hmm. You live in Harlem Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. It's where your parents met and mm-hmm. fell in love mm-hmm. you have a kid there 
it's all connected mm-hmm. here. Yeah, it is actually. Yeah. And, and have you found like your fixed place? Have you found moreover, not not even just fixed place, but have you found that you made them happy? My parents. Yeah. Um. So I guess it's interesting. Um. But I think about that question a lot. Uh, and one of the things is that you know, both my parents are gone now. And so um, it's an internal dialogue, you know, about uh, sometimes there are things that, you know, you on a random day, you look up and go like, oh, my God, my parents could never have even imagined that my life would look like this. And then other times, you know, I look around and go, like, I hope I'm doing enough to further things that they wanted to see. In, in their lives, the things that they didn't get um, and that they were hoping fervently that I would be able to have. So I guess I'm somewhere in between. And uh, certainly my relationship to Harlem is very different than their relationship to Harlem. Um, you know, they came here to New York, um, you know, hoping to get a reprieve, you know, from the world that they, they knew. And you know, my relationship now is as uh, a descendant of those people in the community has very changed and very different. Uh, and and the number of black people who are living in Harlem is declining. And so Harlem itself is different. And it's, a, I guess, kind of a um, an ironic narrative, maybe. But you've made it work. Hmm. I hope so, Yeah. <laughs> That's the least certain you've been this whole hour and a half of talking. Yeah, all right. You know, you never want to be too self-satisfied. I think that's not useful. <laughs> Your kid's only 11 weeks old. Mm-hmm. You have some time to figure out how you're going to tell your life story to her. Yeah, I guess. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting that you just mentioned, uh, you know, Jennifer Egan in his book, uh, A Visit from the Goon Squad, uh, because there's a character in there that actually kind of connects to you know something that happened in my actual life. Because you know you know there's the woman um, who has the one night stands and she always like steals things that are valuable but not like monetarily valuable. Right. Like, I actually think it's the first chapter of the book. Yeah, like sentiment. She takes things that have like extreme sentimental value to mm-hmm. the people who she's there with, and she just collects them. And, yeah. You know, and almost like their value is that she's deprived them of this this object. The worst kind of stealing, pretty bad. It's really the worst yeah. kind of stealing. But I read that and I was like shocked uh, because it reminded me of this, you know, situation uh, when I was in college. You know, I had a, a I dated this woman who was, you know, not a good person. But you know, we've all been there. But <laughs> um, that was her defining quality. Yeah, it kind of was, but. Um, I showed her a picture. It was a picture of my father who had this very elegant suit and tie, and he was uh, 20 years old. And uh, just by coincidence, I had taken a, a picture, a kind of similar picture, when I was 20 years old. And you know, I remember showing her the two pictures and saying that if I ever had a son, you know, I would wait until he was 20 and you know tell him to put on a suit and tie and not take a picture. And it would be like a... A generational thing, but you know, we right. all have these kind of images, and um, and she took the picture, <laughs> not my father's picture, but mine, depriving you. Yeah, depriving me of it, and I was like, 
horrified when I realized this. And to this day, it's like the worst thing I think anybody has done. <laughs> but yeah, and so I read that in a book and I was kind of like, you know, having flashbacks, <laughs> you know, to that situation. That is a story you're going to have to tell your kid. Yeah, I'll tell my kid. Yeah. yeah. It's like, here's a picture of me at 40 and I just took this one and, you know. <laughs> I had this great conceptual idea. Yeah. This girl I dated ruined it in college. Yeah, exactly. You know. Jelani, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. writing can regularly be found on the website and in the pages of the new yorker if you're looking for something longer though he has three pieces of non-fiction available on amazon right now they include to the break of dawn a freestyle on the hip-hop aesthetic the devil and dave Chappelle, and the substance of hope barack obama and the paradox of progress cobb will return as a professor of journalism at columbia university this fall Talk Easy is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, music by Dylan Peck. Our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, and the show is produced by Nora Knight. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.